Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 15 through 22. That's the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 15 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and can open it to page 900. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the alternate? What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. And uh, I want to welcome you to our service again. And uh, as we enter into this time of listening to the word of God, let's start with a prayer. Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, today is a special day. I, I believe our staff member calls it uh, Happy Pagan Holiday or something. He's not here. He's taking care of the kids. But um, today is a special day because it is the Sunday right before Ash Wednesday. And then we, as a church, go into a season of Lent too. Uh, but before I go into the message, I wanted to just thank God for last week's message and the messenger that he sent us uh, for Pastor Juan Kwok for giving us the word and preaching it boldly and well. Uh, some of you may have wondered like, if I prompted him to say certain things. And I want to assure you, for Pastor Juan, I didn't prompt him to say anything. In fact, when he asked me uh, what he should preach on, I said, uh, you know, I'll pray for you, and I trust you as a brother, one of the rare people that I can say that to, and, uh, you know, preach what's in your heart, uh, where the Spirit leads, and he wanted to really encourage our church, and so I thank God for that. Um, but now we are back in the first letter to the Corinthians, and for the few weeks before last week, we've been going over on what the Scriptures say and what it has to say about idolatry. You see, the Corinthian church became prideful. They became prideful in their freedom. The freedom that they believed they had in Christ. Essentially, the thought process was something like this. Christ has set me free from the bondage of sin and death. So what do I have to fear then? What do I have to fear? And then they proceeded not to care for their weaker brother, not to care for the lost, nor care for anyone else other than themselves. In fact, 
we'll see here, not only did they eat the food that was offered up to idols, they started to participate in idol worship itself. Now you may think, or you may have thought, as you've read this passage, what in the world, right? What would possess anyone to do that? That's so dumb, right? And yet, when we study what idolatry is, it isn't just simply bowing down to some statue. In the ancient world, sure, idol worship entailed paying homage to a statue, but as we have studied, idol worship is worshiping anything other than God and worshiping Him in the way He dictates. You can't build a golden calf and call it Elohim and think that God will accept your worship. Why would anyone do that then, right? Why would anyone do that? Well, with idol worship comes practices. The practices are not practices of the spirit, but they are practices of the flesh. There was an incredible amount of sexual immorality going on. Pride over anyone you thought that was weaker. Disregard for those that you were called to, to minister, to reach out for, for the gospel. In a sense, the church was no longer holy, separate from the world. Now, you couldn't even tell them apart. We can see this happening even now in modern so-called churches. I use that term reservation because I do not think they are churches. Instead of the word of God proclaimed, instead of a service that reflects the high view as dictated in the scriptures, what's peddled from the stage is entertainment. You couldn't tell if you were in a church service or a concert, or a TED Talk. And when it's revealed that these churches and their leaders have had deviant and usually sexual lifestyles, is it any wonder why so many people leave the church and don't ever want to come back? They were convinced that what they attended was a church service. They were convinced that the feeling they felt was the Holy Spirit. But how could that be possible if what was being taught was contrary to Scripture? These preachers would select portions on Scripture that they wanted to preach, cherry-picking topics and tickling the ears of their listeners. The enemy is smarter than us. The enemy is smarter than us. And if it were possible, he would rip away every single one of us from God. It's quite possible then that the hardest people to reach are people who think that they have tried Christianity and now want to move on to try other things. My friends, do not be fooled. There is one God and he has shown us in his infallible and inerrant word all that is necessary for faith in our lives. Our hope isn't in ourselves, 
perfectly following God, but our hope is in following the perfect God. When Jesus told his disciples no one could come to him unless it was granted by his Father, that means no one can go to God unless he elects you. You cannot follow him unless he elects you. It said in John that many of the disciples left him. That was a hard passage. That was a hard teaching to get. He said, if my father doesn't pick you or grant it, you can't follow me. And so a lot of disciples left. It was too hard of a teaching. And after this, it's recorded in John that he would turn to the 12 disciples and ask them, do you want to go away as well? Because this was a hard teaching. How can you make sense of that? Don't, what about free will is what people constantly ask. Do you want to go away as well? And this is what Peter would answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When God changes your heart, his words burn inside your soul. There is nothing else that could satisfy. If not Jesus, to whom shall we go? Some of his words will encourage and lift up, and other times it will rebuke and correct us. Sometimes it will be hard to digest. But, who, but to whom shall we go to otherwise? Will entertainers give us life? Will people who constantly just tickle our ears give us life? Will leaving the faith entirely then satisfy? Our attitudes and heart demeanor, when we listen to the word proclaimed, then is, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One. Of God. The passage that we read today, that we have read today, may be one that is also difficult to swallow, especially if you have been living a non holy life, a life that is in line with the world. That means the world has no problem with you. In fact, they love you. You party like they party. You drink like they drink. You eat like they eat. And that was, in fact, the very thing the Corinthians were going through. They knew that idols weren't a thing. They're not real. We all know this. Statues do not have any inherent power in them. They're just pieces of metal or wood or stone. So, eating foods that were offered up to idols, that's not a thing. So then, how about attending idol feasts? You see, even though the Christians in Corinth knew that idols weren't real, every pagan festival was built around the worship of an idol. And so what is idolatry again? Idolatry is anything that is not the worship of the true God in the manner that he desires. Paul would go on to describe it and its practices 
in detail, and we went over chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, but also in Galatians chapter 5. And this is what he says in Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are of the flesh, remember the word sarkanos. If you are of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are, these are things here that cannot and must not define you. Now I get it. Many of us are struggling with some of these things here. You have come to me for counsel. We have prayed. But we are struggling with these things because they will not and cannot define us. These things are not us. You are not sarkanas, but you are pneumatikos. You are people of the Spirit. Paul continues, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But the Corinthians were proud, and they were proud of their freedom. They thought they were strong, and in a sense they may have been. But that maturity, instead of leading them to humility, led them to pride. They didn't think they needed to flee from idolatry and instead indulged themselves in it and all its practices, the practices of the flesh. And this is why Paul says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. You believe that you are elect, chosen by God. You believe that you are free. You believe that you are mature. The Corinthians prided themselves on their wisdom and sensibility. Now Paul is making an appeal to it. He warned them in the verse before not to run toward idolatry in the name of freedom, but to rather flee from it. It's one thing to eat meat offered up to idols. It's an entirely different thing to attend and even participate in its festivals. The believer should flee from and avoid the idolatry of the world, not subject themselves to it. And to make this point, Paul will use the example of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table or communion, as we call it. The Lord's table or communion is one of the most important things a believer can participate in. This is so important, we call it a sacrament. This and baptism are the two sacraments that we hold. This, like baptism, should not be neglected, but it should be held in holy obedience to the one who instituted it, it's so important that this theme of the Lord's Supper is carried throughout this chapter and the next. And here is the institution of the Lord's table. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night of his betrayal, moves the Passover meal to his supper, the Lord's Supper. Rather than it becoming a memorial of the exodus of Egypt, it becomes an institution of his death and memorial of his life that was given for us. This is foundational to the church throughout all of history. Every single church throughout history has practiced the Lord's Supper. That's how integral it is to our faith. And so now we move back to the Corinthians where Paul's entire argument about why a believer should avoid and flee from idolatry is because of the Lord's table. It won't be an easy argument to understand, but it is nonetheless an important one. Two weeks ago, Pastor Paul spent some time talking about what idolatry is. And in the beginning of this sermon, I reviewed it really quickly. Idolatry is making God out to be something other than what he is. It's to err and not respond to the truth as truth. Any action, any thought that is false about God is idolatry. It's when you slander God's character by attributing things that he never claimed. It's saying things like, oh, the God I believe in would never send anyone to hell. That statement is slander. God never said that. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Secondly, idolatry is worshiping the one true God in the wrong way. You can't make a golden calf and say that is God. God is to be worshipped as he declares in his word. Jesus says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Thirdly, idolatry is worshipping or lifting up anything above God. You cannot worship images, idols, people, angels, demons, or even dead people. No matter how much you believe them to be a saint or holy, you cannot worship them. This can be money, prestige, even your family, spouse, children. None of these things can be placed above God because they are not God. A Christian cannot participate in idolatry in the same way the world does. Now, Paul will give us reasons why by using the Lord's table as an example. Again, he appeals to the intelligence of the Corinthians because you're so smart, you're so wise. Let me give you an example. And this example is deep, so we have to be paying attention. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When you take the cup, you participate in the blood of Christ. What does that mean? Well, the word participation is translated from the Greek word koinonia. You may be familiar with this word. This is the word for fellowship. And it's not just any kind of fellowship. It's not like, let's have some pizza, let's watch the Super Bowl, like game time, fellowship. But koinonia is a deep and shared Union. When you take the cup, 
you have a deep and shared union with the blood of Christ. Likewise, when you take the bread, it's a deep and shared union with the body of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the elements of the Lord's table actually turn into blood and flesh. This is what the Roman Catholics believe, and it's called transubstantiation. They believe that the wine and bread actually physically turn into Jesus' body and blood. But their error is deep in that the actual literal blood of Christ doesn't contain anything that is efficacious. The literal blood of Christ does not contain anything that is efficacious for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives out the elements of the Lord's Supper before he was crucified, right? There was no literal blood or flesh. It was wine and bread. Secondly, Jewish people at the time in the ancient world abhorred the idea of consuming blood. They hated it. They abhorred it. They would gag. You go, try some blood sausage. They would go, oh. They wouldn't even think about it. It was unthinkable. So Jesus didn't need to explain, hey, guys, by the way, this isn't my real blood that I'm pouring out right now that I'm asking you to drink. Because the body and the blood was symbolic of what? Of his death. The blood isn't the focus here. It was symbolic of his violent death because the wages of sin is death. And he paid the price by dying for us. His death is what's important. Now for the body of Christ given for us. His body wasn't broken for us. If it was his death, that, uh, if it was, then his death would not have fulfilled the scriptures. And we know by eyewitness accounts of the Gospels that none of his bones were broken. And thus, he did fulfill the Scriptures in its entirety. What's being broken then? The bread. You can't pass out bread without breaking it because you're feeding many people. So this breaking is only so that others can also eat this bread. The main point of the bread is it's symbolizing Jesus' physical body, his life here on earth. So by partaking in communion, we are participating, remember, koinonia, a deep and shared union with Christ's life and his death. The elements represent the life, the temptations that he faced, the humiliation he endured, the suffering that he walked, and the death on the cross. And if we are participating in, sharing in the Lord's table, we are also participating, partaking, fellowshipping with Christ in his ministry, his sufferings, his gospel. By participating, we also share then the benefits of his death. That's what that means. It's not simply a remembrance, like let's think back like a memory you had in high school. It's like looking at an old photo. No, it's koinonia. It's a deep and shared union. That's what partaking and participating means. And when you take the elements of the Lord's table in faith, you are actualizing all of those things that he went through in your own life because he is the great high priest. 
You don't need the elements to turn into Jesus' literal blood and body as if you were crucifying him again. In Romans 6, 9, and 10, it says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He's not literally turning into flesh so that you kill him again. That doesn't make any sense, and it's against Scripture. Christ is not in the elements. Christ is where then? Christ is not in the elements. Where is Christ? Christ is in the believer through his Holy Spirit. But the reality of the communion is that we are communing with Jesus Christ through the sacrament. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Actually, in our communion, we use many breads. We use many loaves. What does he mean by one bread then? The bread symbolizes Christ. And as we partake of the one bread, we are one body. This means that we have this deep and shared union, this koinonia with Christ, but we are also joined together as the body. So we have to get this. When we enter into communion with Christ, we also enter into communion with everyone else at the table. We all come to one bread, partake in one bread, and become one body. In the gathering of the saints, we worship as one, not because of any effort we need to muster up, but because Christ has joined us together as his body. So, when you go to a gathering, an idol festival, this practice is really trying to mimic the worship of God, but to another being. I remember going to a concert with one of our elders here. Um, <clears throat> and the band that was playing is, was huge. It was, it's a name that is recognized all over the world. And uh, he and I only went because we wanted to hear the opening act, not the main act. But while we were there, we said, might as well stay for the main event, or so we thought. And the song started to play. And Everyone knew the song. I think seriously, like every single person in the stadium of tens of thousands of people would sing along at the top of their lungs, except for me and Juven. I honestly, I didn't know any of the songs and neither did he. And people were drinking, they were embracing each other, they were putting their arms around each other, they were swaying to the music. I honestly never thought I'd see anything like a church worship service at a concert. And that's exactly what I said to him. I was like, dude, they're having church. And Paul gives the example, gives an example of it. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Look at the history of Israel. Here's the side note again. Remember, he's referring to the Jewish people and their practices to Gentile people. Again, Israel's history is our history. The altar was there, and what would, what would happen? 
altars there in the Israelite history, right? In the tabernacle, in the temple, and people will bring their sacrifices. Some of that sacrifice would get burned up to God. Some of it went to the priests, and this was their inheritance. We went over this a few chapters ago. But some of it also went to those partaking in the sacrifice. There was this involvement with God, with his priest, and with one another. Don't you see? That's the example he's giving here when he's connecting it to human uh, to communion. Koinonia is a part of worship. There is a deep and spiritual participation that happens in worship. There is a real union between those who are worshiping and with the one being worshipped. So why would you do this with idols? Idols aren't real. But the act of worship is a reality that is present in secular gatherings. They're idol festivals. It really does happen. And you can say that you have all the freedom you want. But if you are a worshiper of the true God, you cannot be a worshiper of idols. Because even though idols do not exist, communion with your fellow worshipers do exist. What do I imply then in verse 19? The food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, and it's an emphatic no. Allah is an emphatic no. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Not only are you communing then with non-believers when you partake in festivals that do not glorify God, which is inconsistent with the faith that you are professing. Not only is it inconsistent, it is demonic. You may be like, whoa, whoa, demonic. That's taking it a step way big of a step further, aren't you? When you partake in a deep, and shared union that is not with God or God-centered, it is you participating with demons is what he's saying. So when you participate in idolatry, remember we went over all the things that we heard in Galatians, all the sexual immorality, the idolatry, all these things. When you participate in idolatry, it is not a neutral or meaningless activity. Idolatry is an active participation and fellowship with demons when you share food and engage in ritualistic behavior you are not engaged in a neutral activity there is no such thing some years ago uh, there was a line that mcs and djs used to shout out while people were dancing it went something like this throw your hands up in the air and act or slash dance like you just don't care, right? It's amazing because the universal meaning, and you could, I mean, this is something that I really believe, but please tell me if I am wrong. Uh, come up to me and explain, but it's amazing that the universal meaning behind throwing up your hands throughout any culture, throughout any language you speak, wherever you go, when you throw up your hands, it's a sign of surrender. You throw them up, when you get flustered and you say, I give up, that's still a sign of surrender. You throw them up when someone would point a weapon at you because you surrender. You throw them up when you worship because in worship you are surrendering to a higher being. 
And I find it fascinating that it doesn't matter what culture that you're in, when you raise your hands, you're raising your hands in surrender. But here's the line. Throw your hands up in the air and wave, act, or dance like you just don't care. You think about that. If throwing up your hands is an act of surrender and that following line follows that line, what is it really saying for you to do? Some members here, actually, and this was many, many years ago. I'm not going to call them out because they're here. But some members here would go to these dance parties and eventually they started asking the question that I posed to you to themselves. Hey, why do I have to throw my hands up in the air? I actually want to reserve that gesture for when I worship God. And I was really, really proud to hear that. More recently, though, throwing your hands up in the air means you're wild and out. Uh, giving up or giving in to your carnal desires still means the same thing to me. When you participate in idolatry, you are participating with demons in rage against God. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Not only are these two things inconsistent, they are polar opposites. You cannot commune with God and demons at the same time. You cannot participate in in what the world participates in because the world is filled with idolatry. In Psalm 96.5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the lord yahweh but the lord made the heavens in deuteronomy chapter 32 17 it says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods they had never known to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded this is what that means i feel like apostle paul here is exegeting Deuteronomy 32.17, explaining Psalm 96.5. But the verse before Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, is verse 16, and this is what it says. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. And that's what verse 22 of this passage says. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Time and time again, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God makes reference to the Israelites as whoring after idols. It's recognized as an adulterous affair. You've communed with Christ. You've come to a deep and strong and really um, important relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a real relationship. You've communed with Christ. You have this union with Christ. Are you now, after having union with Christ, going to turn around and commune with a demon? Do you know how scary and offensive that is? God wants us to know who He is. 
He wants us to know about His character. He gave us His Word and His Spirit. He wants us to know His true character. You know why? Because that is a real relationship. A real relationship is you sharing about yourself. And He wants us to know also if we are saved or not. That's why we're going through the 10-week catechism. And they're all from 1 John, by the way, if you haven't noticed already. All 10 weeks and all 10 answers to know if you're saved or not is actually from 1 John. All 10 points on how we can be assured that we are saved are from 1 John. God doesn't want your salvation to be a mystery, so he gives us his word. But do you know the last verse of 1 John? The last verse of 1 John is this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's it. That's how the letter ends. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The whole letter, which is verse after verse about what a true Christian is and what a false professor is like, ends with, don't be idolatrous. Idolatry is no small matter. God takes it seriously, and thereby so should we. By willfully partaking in idolatrous acts, you are provoking God to anger. And Paul is asking, are you stronger than God? Then why are you provoking him? It's crazy because even in our world, when you know someone is stronger, more skilled, more uh, adept at fighting, you wouldn't provoke them. You would get murdered. And he's asking, are you stronger than God? Then why are you provoking him? That's how Paul ends the passage. So what should we respond with? How should we take this passage? I believe we should take it just as we have started it. We should take it in humility. This passage should bring us to a place of humility. If we have been participating in this in this kind of incredible foolishness, while partaking in the communion with Christ, it's time to repent. Turn back from communing with demons to worshiping the true God in the true way. How? How do we do this? By fearing God and by listening to Him. He is a fearsome God. And a simple rebuke even by the Lord Jesus Christ, is enough to quell even the most violent storm. But he chastises those he loves for their own good and for his glory. As children of God, it is our desire to be true worshipers. Man, that's what I really want here. Don't you? Don't you want to really be true worshipers that please the Lord, that really live out the fulfillment that Jesus has given us, promised us? He wanted to give us life and life to the full as true worshipers to truly worship God? That's what I really want too. Then it's time to run from idolatry. And as we heed the instruction given to us through the Corinthians we can please God and Him alone. And that's our prayer, isn't it? Help us. Help those that are idolatrous. Help us 
who don't see you as primary. Help me to truly worship you. In a sense, what we are saying is, help us to worship nowhere else except at your feet. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us that encourages us, that even corrects us. Lord, we know that you correct those that you love. And Lord, with your word now, we know that it is by your Holy Spirit that we have the convictions that we have. Oh God, help us now to humble ourselves and subject ourselves to your truth, your word, that our lives may be fragrant and pleasing to you as true worshipers. This is what we truly desire. And so God, we want your help. And we know that it is the promise of your Holy Spirit that will guide us all the way until glorification, until we see you. Let's take this time to pray. And as the word has admonished us, in what ways have we been idolatrous? Have we rejected the true worship of God and instated our own way of thinking, this is how I want to worship God, not by God's word, but my own emotions, my own feelings? Let's repent to God and turn back to Him and follow in the way He leads so that He is pleased with us and that we may be fulfilled in Him and Him alone. Let's pray.